All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you from New York City on this, the 30th day of April 2019. And uh, I do want to thank you for listening to this show, making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel. And I also want to invite you... To keep your questions and comments coming along to questions for Taylor at gmail.com. Questions the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. And we do want to thank our sponsors because without them, there would be no show. They make this economically viable. Miramont Resources, Great Bear Resources, Klondike Gold, Novo Resources, RN Resources, and Strike Point Gold. I've titled today's show, How Can We Thrive or at Least Survive Against ZERP and NERP? That is zero interest rate policy and negative interest rate policy. David McElmany, Chen Lin, and Michael Oliver are my guests this week. Poor souls who become addicted to drugs or alcohol most often find the immediate pain of withdrawal far too great to discontinue their pathological behavior. To avoid immediate pain, they continue the behavior that inevitably brings death their way. Likewise, central bankers continue their easy money addiction in, the same, in their attempts to defy the laws of nature by suppressing interest rates to zero or below. So far, these Keynesians' so-called solutions have avoided prolonged poverty, at least in the Anglo-American empire. But at the same time, that has ensured the death of capitalism, which in turn ensures object poverty for the Anglo-American empire, its people, along with a dreadful nihilism and a hellish existence on earth. We can take that as a given. If socialism, and that's what Keynesian economic monetary policy is, uh, it, will end in, it will end badly. The recent interest rate pivot of uh, the Powell Fed in response to a plunging stock market at the end of 2018 shows the Fed has no courage to allow interest rates to rise to restore price discovery of capital. And without price discovery of capital, I would argue capitalism will cease to exist. Given the almost certainty of zero and negative interest rates, at least short-term rates in the future, how can we best respond for wealth protection? And we'll seek answers to those questions from all three of our guests today, uh, but uh, with most of the heavy lifting coming from David McElvady in the second half of today's show. After our first commercial break, Chen Lin will be with me to pass along some of his top picks in the gold energy, uh, gold and energy space. And time permitting, also, uh, he has a biotech stock he'd like to share with you. We'll see if we have the time. 
but right now, at least we have Michael Oliver with us once again to help us sort things out. Thanks for joining me, Michael. Hi, Jay. Good to be back. It's uh, always good to have you here, and we're so thankful you're here almost every week when you're able to. So, uh, Michael, you, you just heard me talk a little bit about interest rates. It seems as though the Fed and, indeed, central banks around the world have painted themselves into a corner whereby, in order to avoid pain of an economic depression, they have no choice but to, but to um, you know, create more of the same pathology that's gotten us into the trouble in the first place. If supply of money increases, its price interest rates that is should decrease. Lots of people are thinking that the Fed is still very much in control of things and other central banks. After all, they've bailed us out of one disaster after another, it seems. Uh, and they, they sort of think that interest rates can be low and can stay low and can even be negative without repercussions. How are you seeing and what is your work telling you now about interest rates? In particular, I know the longer end of the yield curve, which you believe the central banks have less control of. Yeah, the, uh, we look at the T-bond futures primarily, but the, also the 10-year uh, bonds around the globe, uh, Japanese, German, and ours. But uh, we had a view uh, back in 2016 that rates would rise, and sure enough, our T-bond market did drop very sharply. Yields went up a lot. Uh, 10-year also dropped sharply. Uh, but then um, late last year, December specifically, uh, we called a low in the T-bonds down in the 140 area on the T-bond futures. Expecting to see it in the, in the low 150s on the rally. We finally got that rally up to the low 150s a month or so ago. And then bonds relapsed back down into the mid-140 area, right now the 147. So we're only about three points off the recent high. So that rally, t- to some extent, was, you could credit it to Powell, but uh, it, it was more a response to the panic in the stock market, the flight to quality. So once the, the panic in the stock market abated, then the bonds, obviously, the flight to quality ended, and you had a pullback in bonds, uh, rise in yields. The question is, where, where are T-bonds going big time now? We mm-hmm. still think yields are going higher, ultimately, but we're in a, a technical mix here where it looks like the T-bonds are still positioned to enjoy another stock market sell-off, uh, which could buoy them back up again, meaning drop yields a, a bit more. Um, and so we're sort of on the fence here in that regard. But I, I, I'm sort of biased that uh, the, the, the stock market is about at its next high. Uh, we need to at least see 29.50 on the S&P, which so far they've avoided astutely, but I think they'll see it. Uh, and then if we drop from anything 29.50 or higher on the S&P, we drop from there in the next month, which I think we're going to do. Uh, that could put in place the final third high of the S&P since January of last year. You know, it's sort of a widening top pattern. Uh, we don't trust the sustainability of the upside, period, in the U.S. stock market. We do trust it in China and emerging markets, but not here. Uh, if that happens again, obviously what the Fed is going to be forced to do something, not just not cut rates, but cut rates. And it, there's even talk of it right now in the financial markets that maybe mm-hmm. they're going to have a 50 basis point cut coming up which would sort of put Powell in line intellectually and action-wise with the ECB and the BOJ, which are still committed to maintaining low rates, ridiculously low rates. And so the Fed, by cutting rates again, which is uh, certainly a potential if we see the stock market wobble, and I suspect we're going to see that. So now what would that do to a lot of other markets? Well, right now the dollar has been incrementally trying to go up ever since the August high of last year. Dollar index reached up to price level of 97, which is well below the, the bull market peak at 103.50 back in 2016, but still a rally high. 
in that nine months since then, it's inched a new high about every other month above that 97 price level. The other day, it was 98.33. Now, all of a sudden, today, we're back 97.50. We're <laughs> all of 50 cents higher, 50 basis points higher mm-hmm. than the dollar index was in August of last year. So nothing mm-hmm. has been going on there. But if the Fed cuts rates, I'll make you bet the dollar responds to that downside. Mm-hmm. And I think the recent drop in the dollar was somewhat in anticipation of that. Uh, because they're not getting their inflation numbers they want. You know, they want that 2% number, and they're not getting it. So it's a good excuse to go out and let's... Let's try to pump it up again. And mm-hmm. if you wobble the stock market, I'll bet they do. I bet they cut rates. Now, mm-hmm. that also, I think, would help gold. Uh, gold so far has done quite well. Uh, it's rallied uh, $200 off of its, let's see, $1,160, off August low of last year without any assistance from a weak dollar. Uh-huh. In fact, it's defied the firm tone of the dollar, which is at best defined as firm. Uh, gold has defied that and gained a lot of ground. Uh, and, you know, Last Tuesday, for example, in gold, uh, despite the dollar pushing it highs, we put out a report, gold then was at 1266 spot month, that we thought that was probably a low right there and ready for a turn. Well, we got a $20 turn so far. Mm-hmm. Close $20 off the low of the month. Um, so it, it's not showing any downside in gold that looks sustainable. It looks like drift, drift, drift for the last three months. Uh, so the tone isn't that bad. And if you look at the percentage drop that gold's actually suffered from peak tick to low tick over the last four months. Mm. 5.8%, only 5.8%, and now we're already a couple percent off that low. So anyway, but watch the uh, dollar, watch uh, the Fed, because I, I suspect if we get a dollar wobble, uh, excuse me, a stock market wobble uh, in next month from probably at least mm-hmm. 90, uh, 29.50 high in the S&P, mm-hmm. that will spook them, and they'll cut rates. Mm-hmm. And that should have repercussions. Um, yeah, in many markets. Yeah, I think uh, if there's any doubt that uh, that there was that the Fed's watching the mar- watching the uh, the equity markets, I, I think there can't be any doubt about that any longer. No, there, no, no it's almost as if it it's almost as if the uh, they see the equity markets as being the economy almost. Well, it is. It's the last edifice that they created, and it's a huge one. And it looks like a great skyscraper when you look at the S and P price chart going back for the last decade. Mm-hmm. But I argue that uh, it's about two-thirds of that skyscraper is made up of uh, plaster and plywood, not concrete oh. and steel. Yeah, that's, uh, that's kind they of scary. Well, it. It, if it caves, there's trouble. You know, Michael, before we just with a, with a minute and a half or so, two minutes left here yet, you before we went on the air, you talked about the money supply is really dropping very dramatically. And I know recently I saw some statistics showing uh, the velocity of money from the Federal Reserve, the St. Louis Fed, I believe, puts it out is also dropping very dramatically. What do you make of that, and, and what does how is that going to play into all of these, these other markets? Well, a good friend of mine is Michael Pallaro, who used to write for Forbes. Uh, he maintains what's called the Austrian true money supply. He takes Fed data and uh, incorporates uh, factors that in that data that the Austrian School of Economics would do. Is, anyway, he plots the true money supply. That, that's the month-over-month month or year-over-year year growth in the money uh, mm-hmm. supply. And uh, we're in a down. Now, it never, it never goes to zero or negative. Yeah. Let's put it that way. Money supply always basically every decade almost doubles. All, it's consistent since the mid-1900s. Uh, so anytime you get a down, it's usually a temporary thing. But we're down. And uh, the, we're, we've got some of the lowest true money supply readings uh, that we've had in a couple of years. And we're down at levels that, uh, that reflect 
the lack of growth in money supply that occurred prior to the 2000 collapse and prior to the 2008 stock market collapse. Mm-hmm. So if you use it as a broad background indicator, uh, you're right. Uh, money growth is, so while it's still positive, it's at the lower end of, of what central bankers would call acceptable. Uh, mm-hmm. and I'm sure uh, Powell is somewhat aware of that, if he, even if he doesn't watch the Austrian metric. Right. He's aware yeah. that money growth is, is slow, and so he'll respond. And, of course... That have well, consequences. Well, sure, and you know, when you have so much debt on the books, the interest cost of the, just the cost of servicing that debt sucks money out of the economy, and and people have less to spend, uh, and uh, so I'm sure that's part of the equation as well that they have to be worried about, and that's why I think what we see is more and more money being created faster and faster with each of these major uh, bubbles that are created. And it is uh, yep. certainly disconcerting, and um, I don't know if we're ever going to get back to some sort of semblance of free market uh, interest rates. It, it, probably some sort of a cataclysmic event is going to have to happen before people have some sense knocked back into their heads before all of the intellectuals, uh, the, the Keynesians and all the, the Ph.D. economists at the Fed finally uh, get some wisdom in, those, in their skulls. I but, quite agree. Quite agree. Yeah. I think it's around the corner. <laughs> Well, you know, let's, uh, we got to prepare as best we can, and thank you again, Michael, for helping us do that uh, and keeping track of the, of the markets. You've been remarkably good and, and very, very helpful to me and to my listeners. Thanks for being with us, and uh, hopefully you'll be back next week again. All right, well, folks, we do have to go to break, but don't go away. Chen Lin, my good friend and partner, is going to be with me. Uh, what is Chen buying? What is Chen selling? Is his newsletter. He's going to have a couple of his top picks to share with you right after the break. We'll be right back. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Karatha region of Western Australia, where they are currently drilling and trenching their Purdy's reward project. In addition, Novo has partnered with Sumitomo Mining Corporation to advance its Beaton's Creek Gold Project toward production. With over $70 million in cash and strong shareholder support from the likes of Kirkland Lake Gold, Novo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. Great Bear Resources, trading under GBR on the TSX and GTBDF on the OTCQB, is a gold exploration company focused on their wholly owned Dixie project in the prolific Red Lake Mining District of Ontario, Canada. Recent drill results yielded an impressive 1,600 grams per ton gold over 0.7 meters near surface. GBR is fully funded to drill 300 plus holes this year. McEwen Mining is a significant shareholder following a $5.7 million investment as part of a recent $10 million financing. Visit greatbearresources.ca. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, 
Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have a good friend of mine, Chen Lin, with me once again. Chen has had a remarkable track record investing uh, in uh, in the kind of things that most people, uh, well, most people don't work hard enough or, or really um, have the intestinal fortitude uh, to uh, to understand and to deal with, but he's done remarkably well, uh, especially in the biotech sector recently, done very well in other sectors as well. So thanks uh, for joining me, Chen. Thank you, Dave. You know, Chen, we, just with a limited amount of time, I'm going to try to to be as quiet as possible. If, that's, if that is possible, my wife says it's not. But anyway, I just want to ask you about a few of your favorites. Novo Resources, NVO, NSRPF in the U.S., 165.8 million shares. It's a favorite of mine. It is a sponsor of the show. Tell us why you like it. Yeah, it's, uh, they have a long, you can see the recent press release, they have a long program coming because over there this summer will be their winter and they have a lot of work, they will including test mining, box sampling, and so on and so forth. So you have a lot of testing coming and the stock uh, a, a few weeks ago were trading at almost uh, more than 350, right? It's mm-hmm. uh, you know 60 percent higher, and it just came in hard, right? Gold, uh, there is a gold correction, but there is another reason, which is how you, if you see the recent filing, they have 12 million uh, warrant expiring this week. <laughs> so for a trader, this is always a good opportunity because you know gold is. Uh, you know, down and then not many people paying attention, but they have so many warrants expiring, so it wouldn't surprise me some of those warrants at 90 cents, right, well in the mm-hmm. money, would like mm-hmm. to exercise, and they may sell some to the open market. That's true. Push the stock down. Today, mm-hmm. right now, it's trading at $2, 2.06 Canadian. It was trading oh. at 350 350 mm-hmm. not long ago, five, you know, just after I came back from Hong Kong, I remember. So, so you think about that, you know, it's likely the Warren exercise and then create a good opportunity for those who want to buy Novo. You know, if you believe in the story and you think, uh, you know, they have a lot of cash, you know, fully mm-hmm. funded for this year, probably next year, mm-hmm. and then they could bring the, this into production very soon. You, you look at the Beaten Creek, it's very mm-hmm. high grade. Look at the video, uh, easy to grab, you know, high grade just on the surface and then a lot of cash flow. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's certainly one I'm. I'm uh, one of my favorites as well. well let's uh, skip to the next one. Pan Orient Energy is a name we've talked about often on this show, um, and that's picked up a bit now. Tell us why you like that one. Right, it stopped almost doubled in the past, uh, you know, uh, six months. It hit a, a nice. Uh, they have a nice discovery in, in Thailand. Uh, they they just got a permit for production. I recommend people to look at the news. Should happen in. A week or so, they will have a production data because the four of the well, four four well they drill, it has a long term, you know, have a long term production license. So you you can calculate at seventy plus oil, how much cash flow they will get. Right, that mm-hmm. that's one case. Another is uh, a Powerend has historically has been selling their asset at the premium to their. Mm-hmm. Uh, reserve. Okay, so you, 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 I welcome people to look at their last sell, uh, usually because exploration upside. So hypothetically, if they sell this uh, project as it right now with their cash, will be their likely be their market cap. So leave, that leave their big exploration 
uh, in this summer free. So basically, you get mm-hmm. this for free if you're willing to hold it for a year. So yeah, if mm-hmm. if they fail, the expiration fail, they always people want to get out. Okay, so they could down. But if you hold it till this time next year, if all your price stay where it is, you know, sixty, seventy, potentially the Thailand and and then they will be sell just as if now could have this market cap, plus they have a five or six similar target in Thailand. So potentially can be sold as multiple of current stock price, plus as a huge upside for Indonesia in this summer. So you get that for free. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we should mention there's only only a little under 55 million shares. That's all they have uh, at $1.38 in U.S. money. That's what I saw earlier today. So it's a very small market cap. So any kind of a major discovery could really push this thing much higher, I guess. And uh, Another one is is Cup Energy. That's I think over there over in the Ukraine, I believe, aren't they, Chen? Three hundred fourteen yes. million yes. shares. Yes, it, it's uh, it's in the Ukraine, just like Power. And I visit myself personally, right, about two years ago, and it, it's a uh, it, it's a cash flowing profitable company. Okay, you can see their uh, financials very good. Okay, they're paying down there. They have a little bit of that, but they're paying down them very quickly. And uh, they uh, they have a way. They already found how to uh, expand their production. So likely, just organically, they can almost double their existing production. So increase, they will increase their cash flow, increase their profitability. Uh, I don't know what they're going to do with those cash. It's a little bit like uh, the March resource that I, I, I talked to my subscriber that's a long, long time ago. Just a cash flow story. Plus, they they will have a big exploration story this summer. Okay, three well carried by his partner at western part of the Ukraine, uh, adjacent to Slovakia. It's the same company who did the exploration in Slovakia in the past 20 years. They will explore on uh, Ukraine part of basin. So very, very promising. Actually, very low-hanging fruit, I would think. And then mm-hmm. market is not you know, pricing any of the success. Okay, and uh, it's only a nickel, uh, I believe, uh, in Canadian money, right? Three hundred fourteen yeah, million shares. It was two cents earlier, uh, two months ago. So it actually went up one hundred fifty percent in the past two months. <laughs> but I think this is the very beginning. This is it pretty liquid, Chen? Can you get in? Can you get in and out of it pretty oh, easily? Yeah, it's uh, right today has a how six hundred thousand share traded today. Okay, you know, they're right, trading right. a million. You, you can, but it's not yeah. as liquid as others. But mm-hmm. if you're patient. All right, another one that you're really hot on is Valero Energy, uh, VLE, I think it is, uh, in Canada, PNWRF, I believe, in the U.S. Um, and that's, uh, tell us about that one. Right, uh, the, the thing, I've been telling my sister to buy the current uh, level, okay? I, I bought it uh, before they have the discovery that you $1, less than $1 Canadian. And then last year, when the water issue started to sh- show up, I told my subscriber to sell. That that time was uh, four dollar and change. Right? Mm-hmm. So right now there's so much negativity to the stock that I make me feel like I want to buy buy back uh, my position. Uh, you know, I used to own. I, you know, I used to be one of the larger shareholders of Valar, and I sold majority of them after they have a water issue. They have the decline issue that happened in uh, September, November. But right now it's over. Right, so you look at it, the management probably made a mistake. Uh, they probably shouldn't commingle all the zone together. Now they don't know 
which zone has water and what's going on there. Oh. And they probably shouldn't shut in the, 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 all these uh, fracking zones for six and nine months. However, they learned their mistake. So they're going to frack. So basically, they have a, a plan is eight frack at two wells uh, coming in the next uh, few months. And if any, you know, I just need one or two successful frack. Oh, what we need is one or two successful frack. And then they can say, this is successful because you can drill at that area, you can drill a horizontal well, right? This is the exploration story, and the upside is huge. There's so much negativities of this stock and fuel. It's a good spot to buy. You know, I bought more today. Where where are the uh, projects, Chen? The project is in the European part of Turkey. So it's just where the Russian gas is exporting to uh, uh, to Europe. So actually, very close to pipeline, perfect location. If it will be the first ever successful fracking story in Europe. So actually, it's a very very important uh, okay. uh, exploration this year, and then there will be fracking this year. And All right, Chen. With one with one minute left, uh, Neptune Wellness Solutions is another one you're really hot on in the biotech spec sector. Uh, yeah, take yeah, a minute yeah, to tell is, us about that. Yeah, it used to be biotech. Right now, they're changing there to marijuana story. So, but I don't think so many people know the story. Uh, they used to extracting krill oil, so they have a six thousand ton uh, per year capacity. You know, if you look at all the other marijuana oil business, they they have like one hundred ton per year. You know, it's like day and night. And the partner is um, is a canopy grows. Canopy Coal just announced they're going to open a big U- U.S. center to extract, you know, hemp, basically. And then uh, Neptune will be perfect partner for that. So there's a very likely, I, I view a very likely possibility that they have a big partnership announcement coming because you can, you can read uh, uh, Canopy's uh, this week uh, press release, right? They have a big uh, center in the U.S., and potentially take over target for, for Canopy as well. So it, it's just something that can, you know, have very, very big catalyst. If you look at the company press release and presentation will come in in the next month or two because they will get a license for 200 tons, and then they have a feasibility study for 6,000 tons. That will blow away all their competition. All right. Are they still in the krill business, though? No. They sold their krill business to their competitor, and then they move all the machine. Uh, I see. They are planning okay. to retrofit all the machine into extraction of the marijuana and hemp okay. oil. And and the marijuana is is this medicinal marijuana or what is it? What are they doing? It will be all the all these medicine, medicine, recreational, and then hemp. They will create the CBD, which is right now legal, right? Right, CBD is legal in the United States. So, uh, there's all these. Uh, all these different uh, companies want to get into this business. It's one of the areas that's really hot. Personally, oh, I know. Eventually, Listen, it all will the become a bubble. Going, yeah, all yeah, the capital where the bubble into... goes, right. Because not, well, not capital going to my energy stock, other stocks. So this is one area really hot. And I feel, you know, Canopy really should either partner with them or buy them out. So then either way, I will make a nice, nice return. Okay, and, well, and I, I, I can I, buy I other things. Well, I want to get this marijuana stuff over with so we can get some capital coming back into the gold sector, Chen. Exactly. That's really, it's that, that's really what I'm hurting. hoping, too. <laughs> okay. All right, Chen, thank you. Uh, we'll have to leave it go with that. Um, we're out of time, but thanks very much for sharing your ideas, and we'll look to do it right. again sometime in the near future. Thank you so much. All right, folks. Well, thank you, Don't Jay. go away. 
David McIlvaney is going to be with me right after the break, and uh, he'll have some, I think, some very important things to tell us about about the markets and, uh, in particular, about um, some of the issues that are impacting uh, the interest rates and other uh, key market metrics that we look at every day. Don't go away. We'll be right back with David. rush has begun. Recently, three of the largest gold mining companies announced strategic acquisitions in the Yukon territories. Ahead of them was a group who had already consolidated the key claims covering the historic Klondike gold rush into one company, aptly named Klondike Gold Corps. Led by a team of accomplished geoscientists, the company is steadily advancing exploration to reveal the rich source of all that gold. The hunt for the next major discovery is well underway, and Klondike Gold's shareholders are strategically positioned. Stay ahead of the majors and follow KlondikeGoldCorp.com. Oren Resources is a copper gold exploration company pursuing the world's next major discoveries. It has seven projects, including two active flagships, Committee Bay in northern Canada and Sombrero in southern Peru. This summer will be one of the most exciting times in Oren's history as the company turns the drill at Sombrero for the first time ever. The project's impressive surface results have identified Sombrero as an analog to one of Peru's biggest mines. Oren is also implementing cutting-edge machine learning technology to unlock its highly prospective gold belt at Committee Bay. Visit OrenResources.com and subscribe to keep up with the company's busy year ahead. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really happy to have with me once again David McIlvaney. David is the president of McIlvaney Financial Companies, McIlvaney Wealth Management, and ICA. That's a precious metals brokerage firm. He is a featured speaker in many venues, and he is a favorite of this show. He has a brilliant mind given to him by his creator, and he is using it in the service of countless people around the globe which is why I'm always really happy to have him. feel very blessed, actually, to have David with us uh, to share his insights with my listeners. Thank you, David, for joining me again. Thank you, Jay. Very generous introduction. Well, it's a very accurate one, I believe, uh, because I think you are doing a lot of things for a lot of people, starting with your family, by the way. And I know you are very much a family man. I might mention again to my listeners The International Legacy by David McIlvaney, a book that's highly recommended. Uh, by yours truly, uh, not simply because it will help you in your financial life, but in your other walks of life as well. It's not just about making money. In fact, those of us, any of us who are f- who are just really uh, focused only on that part of life are going to miss an awful lot of the good things that, uh, that the Creator has given us to enjoy. So, David, um, 
before I get started, I just want to tell my listeners that I spent about 45 minutes this morning listening to your April 23rd McIlvaney Weekly Commentary, and it was just fantastic. I think in, in explaining much about the financial world as it exists today, the global financial world, uh, and helping us to understand the geopolitical tectonic fault lines that could lead us, I think, to some severe problems in the future. Certainly, it's good to understand how the world really works as much as as much as that's possible. So, I hope that we might be able to touch on some of those issues that you talked about. And by the way, I think I think people can go back and listen to. Uh, to your weekly commentaries. Uh, do they go to McIlvaney.com or do I, that's, where would that's they go? perfect. Yeah, McIlvaney.com will link you to kind of our, our whole ecosystem. McIlvaney Weekly Commentary is the URL for the commentary, but you can find everything at McIlvaney.com. And last week, you're right, we spent some time talking about Iran and uh, the reduction of, of oil intended to flow from there, uh, or we, we don't want to see it flow from there. At least that's the Trump position. Yeah, that's the Trump position. And, uh, you know, I, I, yeah, you say the other things, too. i just like to remind my listeners, also, you have a quarterly tactical short strategy. That's a seminar, though. It's a, a fairly long. It's, I guess it's in printed form, but you can listen to it, and you need to sign up ahead of time to listen to it. Is that is that right? But people can listen to it. It's, it's free. Yeah, well- uh, that's right. What we do with our with our wealth management products is on a quarterly basis, we have a conference call just to touch base with um, current investors and prospective investors who are trying to figure out how to have tactical short as a complement to their long portfolio. If they're working with professional money managers today, tactical short is a great complement to lower total portfolio risk. And our other wealth management products also have kind of that uh, quarterly check-in. So you know what we're thinking and how we're likely to move in the next quarter. Mm-hmm. And one more little blessing that I've just recently discovered that you provide there, your weekly recap, which is like a one-pager, sort of, I can, it's in a chart form, you can see all the, most of, at least most of the major markets that I'm, that I'm caring about, you can see the movement from one week to the next, which I find very helpful for me, and I've been uh, cutting and pasting that, I hope you don't mind, and passing it on to my subscribers on the weekend, but I'd really like people to go and, and avail themselves to all of the, the goodies uh, the valuable things that are available at the McIlvaney uh, site. Um, okay, so I've titled today's show, How Can We Thrive or Simply Survive Against Zerp and NERP? Um, you know, we've had Daniel DiMartino Booth on this show several times in the past. She was an advisor to Richard Fisher of the Dallas Fed. Uh, she was a big fan of Jerome Powell uh, when he was named to the Fed, and somehow Danielle felt that Powell would do the right thing, do the hard thing, no matter what came his way, that he would stick with a move back towards normalization of interest rates, letting the markets decide them. And uh, so she was surprised. I mean, I wasn't, frankly, but she was. She said she was flummoxed by the Powell pivot early this year. Do you see any chance at all of central banks returning to a market-driven price of capital any anytime soon, David? And, and, no. and what would it take for that to happen? No, I think on a voluntary basis, it's impossible. And what we had was the big reveal um, going back to December and then that early week, January 4th. The timing of that U-turn was pretty critical because I think Powell saw for the first time how fragile the leveraged financial markets actually are. And even though philosophically he would like to take things back to sort of a market-driven environment, He's realizing that there is a cost, and I think he was looking into the underbelly of the financial market and seeing just how quickly it can be destroyed. So, you know, I, I, I think 
I think what we saw there was a very telling piece, somebody who in principle would have supported market dynamics, and that U-turn suggests that he knows he knows that there's, there's, there's a, a real issue, way too much leverage in the system, and it cannot be unwound without hurting too many important parties. Yeah, important parties is right. I mean, 2008, 2009, we saw that as well, I would argue. Um, you know, I, a lot of people that I know say, okay, um, QE1, but then we went to QE2 and QE3, it was just like too much cocaine or whatever. Yeah, and, and I, I think we'll end up seeing more QE as time goes on. The fact that they're talking about lowering rates and maybe even, you know, Namira suggesting just in the last 24 hours that the first cut will be a 50 basis point cut out of the gate yeah. suggests that they really are uh, concerned. Because, again, when in history have they been this proactive in terms of getting out in mm-hmm. front of a recession? Kacha mm-hmm. Lakota's comments few weeks ago, suggesting that this is how we need to manage the next recession. Long before it casts its shadow into the marketplace, we're going to be there to stop it. I mean, that that's pretty radical talk, actually. Well, it keeps getting more radical. Every bubble um, gets more, you know, requ- requires more radical solutions, it seems, uh, quote-unquote solutions. Well, let's talk a little bit, David, or, or maybe you can help us understand um, what you know, what are the repercussions of this funny money, this money, this, we're not allowed to have price discovery of capital any longer, it seems. And what are the repercussions to the economy, to society in general? Maybe you could speculate, not speculate, but give us your your ideas about uh, about that. Yeah, well, I think you're basically looking at a choosing of winners and losers, and the two tools that are being used as we move towards uh, zero or negative interest rates as kind of a permanent state of affairs on a global basis is the two um, you know, ways of extracting value quietly and surreptitiously, financial repression and inflation. And you know, if you can if you can manipulate the inflation statistic to a low level, a tolerable level, and then run the actual real world inflation number at a higher level, you are burning off debt at a quicker pace. So inflation is a tool; it's a very useful tool. Um, financial repression is, and in both cases, guess what? The losers are the savers and the middle class. The winners are those who are massively indebted. In this case, it's corporate America and it's your sovereigns who are under a lot of pressure. Should we see a rise? in interest rates. So at this point, central banks have to be active in suppressing interest rates. That's where we get the financial repression piece. Yes, that hurts savers. Yes, that hurts those living on a fixed income. Yes, that hurts the middle class. And then, of course, inflation just absolutely guts the fish that we do call the middle class. Mm-hmm. Yes, and we're seeing we're seeing loads of inflation, If you at least you, if you define inflation as the Austrian school of economics, uh, it's simply the money supply, the, the the massive amount of money that's created. And we have inflation too, I would argue, David, as well, in the equity market and the financial assets, right? I mean, the bond market, for goodness sakes, uh, the, the debt markets have just gone absolutely bananas. Yeah, and that's right. If you look at from a valuation standpoint, you're talking about the stock market to, to let's say the capitalization of GDP being you know the second highest it's it's ever been in U.S. stock market history, uh, affectionately known as the Buffett indicator, um, cyclically adjusted price earnings ratio above 31. We, we've been higher. 
we've been higher, but only once in history. So yes, things are rich in the equity market and equally rich in uh, the uh, the bond market. I had a conversation with uh, the guru in, in, in the bond world, uh, Mr. Sila, who wrote the book on interest rates. In mm-hmm. 5,000 years of recorded history, what we're doing right now with interest rates has never been done. It's unprecedented. So again, what's on the other side of, of a low interest rate? It's a high bond price. Arguably, in 5,000 years, here in this time frame, 2016 to 2019, we've never seen bonds higher. Ever, 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 ever. Wow. I mean, it's just hard to think about what's going to happen when the wheels finally come off this wagon. But it, it seems to me, you know, we hear all the politicians talking about redistribution of wealth. We tell, we hear them talking about, you know, we got to tax the rich or one thing or another. They don't seem to ever think about the fact that it's the monetary system that is responsible for this redistribution of wealth, do they? No, that's right. And, and this is where they can get away almost with murder. Um, because people don't understand how this works. And, you know, Trump is going to spend more than he brings in. Um, That's the new way. Uh, It's actually not the new way. It's just being done at a level we've never seen before. Think about this, Jay. In 2002, we were in a recession and we went in deep. We, we, we spent like drunken sailors and we used money that we didn't have, all $158 billion that year, $158 billion in 2002. What about today? Well, we're not in a recession and we're on track to spend $1.1 trillion more than we're bringing in. And if, if you look at Treasury issuance this year, it'll probably be an additional three $400 billion on top of that. So uh, what is this? It's monetary madness. We're We're soon to call it uh, modern monetary theory, but Trump is already employing his version of MMT with issuing all kinds of credit and, and again, pressuring the Fed to make sure that between the Treasury and the Federal Reserve, it's just all kind of tidied up. And we have nothing to worry about in terms of uh, the new exponential growth in debt. David, do you see this playing out as some sort of a deflationary depression again? Uh, Because we have all this debt. I I was talking to Michael Oliver earlier in the show today, and he's talking about how a lot of the measures of money, true money supply, or I don't know, some of the other measures are all down, and they're down uh, worryingly to a lot of people who watch these things. I noticed that velocity of money is, is really, really down compared to what it's been. M2, I think, is a measure that the Fed uses. Um, how do you see this thing playing out? Um, what's the best guess, and, and how do you prepare for it? I think this comes back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of being on, the, on in the winner category, the loser category. Winners and losers are going to be politically chosen. And so there are going to be pockets of debt that are allowed to implode and, un, and go unsupported. And then there's going to be pockets which are absolutely sustained. A systemic deflation, um, you know, I think you're going to see a, a huge fight to prevent it. Um, but there will be areas where they just let let it go. And so I would tend towards selective deflation in particular asset classes where you just can't can't hold the tide back. Um, but but the tools necessary to fight broader based deflation are all inflationary in nature. And lest we forget, at the end of the day, all this is is a confidence game. Everything is being played out in terms of can you keep Joe and Susie lunchbox engaged? Can you keep them happy and confident? And the day you lose Joe and Susie lunchbox is the day it doesn't matter what the Fed tries to do, what the ECB tries to do, what the Bank of Japan tries to do. You're talking about a flood of money trying to exit some or maybe all of the markets that, that we, we now assume are going to be stable. Mm-hmm. 
Sounds a little bit like uh, China, Russia, other totalitarian regimes that pick winners and losers. But um, with regard to so, – so there might be some areas where they're not going to be protected. I'm, I'm guessing, for example, that the military-industrial complex will be allowed – will be protected. I would imagine things that are attached to government pretty closely will be protected. Private sector, people that don't have enough – enough political clout will be left to go down. How do we know who to pick and who to choose? And, and is that something that you might be talking about from time to time, I'm sure, on your weekly commentary? Absolutely. I mean, we're very interested in that. I think as you watch the groups like KKR and Carlisle, the very politically connected and very, very moneyed crowd, what you'll see is that the areas that are allowed to fail will be bought by pen, for, bought for pennies on the dollar um, by groups like Carlisle, KKR, uh-huh. and, and Blackstone. So I, I would be watching their acquisitive nature. I'd be watching where they move. Um, yeah, and, and again, it's politically chosen winners and losers mean that somebody wins, even when there's a loser in, 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 in the mix. I would look at private equity, um, again, to be a huge political winner as, as they clean up and are essentially allowed to step in and buy when there's blood in the streets. All right, whichever way this goes, and I would like you to perhaps pass along to our listeners some of the services that uh, McElmany provides. You you have a service where people can buy gold, buy and store it. I know that. Uh, What else do you do there that that might be helpful to people of average means or above average means uh, that that might be able to help protect their families uh, in difficulty that that we're going to be inevitably facing sometime? I think one of the core things that people should focus on in this period of, you know, trying to thrive in a ZERP and NERP environment where financial repression and inflation, I think, are a given, you know, precious metals aren't described as precious because of some marketing campaign. Mm-hmm. Gold has been that way for a long, long time, and I think you will see its value reemerge. But I would focus on how you construct a portfolio around the priorities of privacy and protection and profit. You know, privacy is something that we take for granted today. Uh, Maybe that's because we live in the 21st century and no one cares. But as governments become more and more invasive, I think, and and who knows what we get in 2020, but Mm -hmm. privacy is going to be a priority as you're constructing a precious metals portfolio. Protection, I think, is kind of what we've been talking about in the context yeah. of a devalued currency or or inflation over time. Um, I think I think gold is 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 sitting right there. The profit component is one that I think is often overlooked because if you if you properly position a metals portfolio, you have lots of room for intramarket arbitrage. And I can give you a couple of examples, mm-hmm. um, but we love things like the platinum to palladium ratio. Last time we did that for clients, we were able to capture an, an increase of 350% in ounces. It was absolutely fantastic. Another example would be something like junk silver. We've captured double-digit rates of return or increases in ounces since 2009. Three different times we've captured an increase of ounces of greater than 20%. Again, so I think who you're partnered with in that regard makes a difference. We've been in the business for 47 years and can certainly help construct a portfolio to focus on those three areas, privacy, Mm -hmm. protection, and profit. And again, I I think that's where we work work with uh, a team that is second to none in the industry. At least I feel confident that they're that good. Yeah, well, you definitely have... uh I have attracted some very strong people to your team, David. There's no doubt about that in my mind. Uh, and, and that's always important. People is everything when you're dealing 
well, with almost anything in life. Uh, I, I would like to switch a little bit to some of the topic uh, topics and some of the things you were talking about in your weekly commentary last week, in particular the petrodollar. Can you comment a bit about the petrodollar and why that was created to replace a global gold-backed currency that was in place until Nixon uh, took gold away from money in 1971? Yeah, and the petrodollar has a long history. It goes back to FDR in the 40s. Imagine being in a war foot, on a war footing and being willing to get on a boat, get over to Egypt, and spend some time negotiating something that was complementary to the Bretton Woods Monetary Agreement. So Bretton Woods is 44, and FDR is over in Egypt in 45, making sure that, you know, who he was meeting with then was, was, was the Saudi royals, to make sure that the dollar would be traded in uh, or the oil would be traded in in, in dollar terms. Mm-hmm. Then you've got the Kissinger team in the 1970s, specifically 1974, the year I was born, did the same thing with the Saudi royals, really emphasized in the context of a dollar freefall. He knew that if there wasn't a wide audience of people holding, this is, this is Kissinger was smart enough to figure mm-hmm. this out. If there wasn't a broad base of holders of U.S. dollars required to hold those dollars so that they could be buying oil that they needed to run their mm-hmm. economies, that that was what stabilized the dollar. Free fall through the late 60s and early 70s, 74, you begin to see a floor put in. Pricing oil in dollars was, was, was again, reaffirmed. Um, the dollar was under ma- massive attack up, up until William Simon made it over to the Middle East, mm-hmm. representative of the Kissinger team. Um, what is it today? You know, I think we may see a similar version of that. With with Iran being marginalized, what we're really doing is focusing the flows over back to the Saudis, a friend who's been with us for a long time. You know, we totally pulled the rug out from underneath the Shah of Iran, in mm-hmm. part because he wanted to prioritize Iranian interests, and we had U.S. domestic priorities that he was not particularly favorable to. The Saudis would play our game more than he would, so we put in the Ayatollah. Ever since then, we've been doing the same thing over and over again. Don't give um, two, two shekels for uh, the folks in Iran, but we, we do care about the Saudis, and I think we just shifted a, a million to a million four in production over to the Saudis. I I think the quid pro quo may be we gave you a $75 million a day gift in terms of this oil flow. We need from you some financing of our treasuries. Back to the petrodollar recycling that's been popular uh, since the 70s, a way that we can finance our deficit. We mentioned it earlier, $1.1 trillion. Who's going to buy that stuff? Right. Who's going to buy that stuff? Because the Chinese are gone. The Chinese aren't doing it. They're not re- recycling trade dollars anymore. They were. We buy their stuff, they take our, our, our dollars and recycle them into U.S. treasuries. They're not real interested in doing that anymore. So we've got to kind of jumpstart that treasury uh, purchases with petrodollars. And again, who's going to buy treasuries when the rates are where they are, right? They're just way below any kind of reasonable uh, reasonable uh, cost of capital rates. So. It's- Except that, except that, relative to many other parts in the world, we end up looking like you know almost high yield bonds. I mean, <laughs> com- compare us to the Chinese or the Japanese. You know, the, 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 I saw that the, the president of the Swiss National Bank is arguing that seventy five basis points below zero is not low enough. So no, you know, when we come in at two to three percent, you know, we, we we look pretty rich relative to a negative seventy-five basis points. Yeah, well, we'll see where it goes from here once things start to fall apart in in the U.S. economy. But David, with just less than four minutes left, I'd like to ask you a little bit about how you see things playing out with China. I know part of the discussion that you had 
uh, on your weekly commentary had to do with the flows from Iran. As you just said, we're trying to squeeze Iran. Uh, but there are willing buyers for Iranian oil, China, I believe. Uh, what about Russian oil going to China? And to what extent uh, are those countries sort of seen as the the evil nations because they don't play ball with our with our with our uh, with our game with our petrodollar game? Yeah, I think there's some very interesting geopolitical undercurrents here. And, you know, one of the things that we did is kind of up the pressure both on India um, as well as Turkey and China as well, because those were the three biggest buyers out of the eight who had been exempted uh, till, till, till Martin, uh, May 1st. And they'll have to scramble and, and get their oil from someplace else. They can, they will. Uh, but again, we kind of unsettle them for, for a little bit. I think one of the things that plays very much to the Chinese favor in our kind of pushing them around, telling them what to do on, and, and threatening them with, with sanctions if they buy Iranian oil, mm-hmm. is that they get to look very good to the Chinese people saying, wait a minute, we're not going to be pushed around. We'll do what we want to do. Mm-hmm. And, and, and anybody who tries. So you know, remember, this is the anniversary of Tiananmen Square. And, and, and this is a great year to be whipping up sort of a nationalist fervor. Uh, my fear is, is that we can poke and prod with a stick a little too much, just as we did with the Japanese prior to uh, the mm-hmm. World War, where we started limiting the, the importation of the vital resources that the Japanese needed. And the unintended consequence was that the Japanese had to go to mainland China and start gathering resources elsewhere because we were cutting off uh, their supply lines. So, mm-hmm. and they and what we did was encourage the national fervor that the Japanese needed to to get up and go and do that. Yeah. Could we do that again with the Chinese? Could we have, have failed to learn something from history? Could we have have forgotten that poking someone with a sharp stick is generally not well received? Mm-hmm. It yeah. could have some unintended consequences. Yeah, for us. Unintended consequences of of dire unintended consequences potentially, David. On that unhappy note, I think we're going to have to leave it go. But again, it's McIlvaney dot uh, com, right? That's where people should go to follow all all that you're doing. You bet. You bet. From there, they can find our wealth management site. They can find our vaulted program, the gold savings program. Uh, they can find the weekly commentary, McIlvaney.com, M-C-A-L-V-A-N-Y.com. Look forward to getting to know you if, if, if you would like to have an extended conversation. Jay, thanks so much for having Excellent. me on the program. Thank Always you, love David. Thank you for being with us. Well, folks, that's all the time we have this week. Next week, my main guest will be Chris Blasey of NeptuneGold.com. Also, uh, Sean Kunkun of a new company that I'm covering in my newsletter, as well as a sponsor of this show, Strike Point Gold, uh, will be with me, and hopefully Michael Oliver as well. Until next week, goodbye, and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Business Channel. Strike Point Gold, trading under SKP on the TSX and STKXF on the OTC, has a market cap of under $10 million. Strike Point is a new player in the Golden Triangle of BC and Canada. Focus will be on drilling the Willoughby Project in 2019. Prior drilling delivered over 20 meters of 25 grams per ton gold and 184 grams per ton silver. Recent receding glaciers have identified new gold targets. Neighboring projects have been acquired by Strike Point's largest shareholder, Ascot. Eric Sprott and 
Esquina round out the other top shareholders.